0: This is talking mule deer with your hosts Steve Belinda and Jody Stemler. Talking mule deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, mule deer and black-tailed deer biology and management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start talking mule deer. Hey, this is Jody Stemler. We are talking mule deer from the North American Wildlife and Natural Resources Conference. And I'm
1: Steve Belinda and sitting down with us right now is Ed Arnett from the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership and David Singer from the Colorado Wildlife Transportation Alliance. Welcome gentlemen.
2: Great to be here. How's it going?
1: Good, so um, as, as David from your title, uh, Wildlife Transportation Alliance, tell us a little bit about your organization, what you guys are trying to do. I work for
3: the Colorado Department of Transportation we have an interest in reducing animal vehicle collisions i also am an environmental specialist and so we have an interest in the diversity and health of the herds as they migrate across the state of colorado
1: and And so, so so the alliance is something pretty new right
3: it's yeah it's been about two or three years we've had a couple of successes on specific projects throughout the state and we want to figure out how do we make this more consistent on a statewide basis how can this be a programmatic success? It's something that we've seen that no one agency can do on its own. We need these strong partnerships in order to advance this collective mission.
1: So it's a true alliance. Yep. Yes. Yep. So, so Ed, you're an old friend, uh, colleague, we've known each other a long time. You and Jody and I go back and um, tell us a little bit about the, the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership or TRCP is the acronym we're
2: gonna use and you know what you're up to these days. Sure. So the TRCP started with what I deem to be a great vision from our founder, Jim Range, who really saw the need to bring together the disparate voices of the sportsman's community. So the TRCP was formed under that true partnership umbrella and bringing all the individual players together and trying to have a more collective voice to influence policy. So the TRCP is a sportsman's conservation organization. Uh, we've been in, around since uh, 2002. Work a lot on public land policy, some level of state policy as it transcends a broader, a broader, uh, a broader view of the world as it relates to uh, federal policy and other things like migration corridor work, uh, those kinds of things. So we'll engage at state level, but it's largely we work on federal policy. We also have programs and coastal fisheries and other things uh, david uh, just
1: a disclaimer jody and i have both worked for trcp in the past so there's as a, a consultant we're
0: not staffed oh, you well, were staffed. i was staffed, i was yes. not staffed. i was actually <laughs> staff and but but i and i, I remember <laughs> the day of the the mental conception uh by jim uh and the, the idea was was it immaculate <laughs> um <laughs> We were working on wildlife conservation funding um, on the federal level. At that time, it was the Conservation and Reinvestment Act, trying to get dedicated funding Mm -hmm. for conservation and recreation. It was an incredible program. It was relatively revolutionary. We had passed the House, and we got undermined uh, along the way. And Jim was pissed that the sportsman's community, the moderate conservation voice, did not have the relevancy in this debate, that we were sidelined by, on one side, either the conservative right property rights folks and on the other side of a, a more left leaning environmental core and so TRCP was born in that concept of trying to mobilize a voice in that moderate sportsman conservation vision
2: and it's certainly what intrigued me not just our mission which is guaranteeing all americans quality places to hunt and fish but that vision was very intriguing to me when i was coming to the organization and it has its challenges i mean the mule deer foundation has been a long standing partner of ours and, and we've appreciated that partnership, along with all of our partners. We're up to 58 partners in the organization now. But that collective voice is what's key, as you, as you all know. Now, Ed, you have a, a long history in a lot of things. You, you've done
1: bighorn sheep work. Uh, you worked in the bat world, or, no, or one of the foremost <laughs> He works expert. in the bat cave. He's the Batman. <laughs> <laughs> but now you're working, you guys are working on some stuff that's, that, that transcends to everyone out there. It's, it's that wildlife, highways, corridor, nexus stuff. Tell us, Ed, what, I know you recently held an event. You're working to get some stuff out there. You're working with David and the Alliance. Tell us, you know, get into this, guys. Tell, tell sure. our listeners really what's going on.
2: Yeah, and I'll start a little bit bigger picture. Of course, some of our work on public lands policy relates to energy development. It relates to the new migra- the Secretarial Order and Migration Corridor. There's a lot of things embedded in habitat and and public land uh, conservation. Um, The transportation piece was born from Secretarial Order 3362, from our work on it. So when Secretarial Order 3362 was released and the states issued all of their priorities, all 11 states that are encompassed by the Secretarial Order submitted threats and all 11 states submitted transportation issues as a major threat. So we were contacted. So let me
1: stop you there. That's yep. basically animals getting killed on the road and, and causing damage, safety, and affecting how uh, you know the ecology of the animals. So
0: um, I'd imagine it was the the, the the vehicle collisions, but it's also them severing corridors, right? I mean, Correct. we've seen yeah. maps. Yeah. Matt Kaufman, we had the Wyoming Migration Initiative came on, and 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 there are maps on their website that show the stop of corridors. Correct. At I-80, um, and it, 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 so, so it, it severs, it has the potential to sever these traditional corridors.
2: That's a really key point because, you know, these are linear features that are very pervasive in the landscape. There can be habitat fragmentation issues, but also that barrier effect of movements as well as the collisions. Well, I was going
0: to say, from, from our world of wildlife conservation and caring about the critters, um, it, it is the severing of the corridors. But from a human health perspective, it's the safety issue.
3: Absolutely. And so this has emerged to be a win-win from a transportation perspective. We have a safety interest, human safety, and reducing those crashes. There's a real cost to every time an animal is hit. It's to the animal, to our economy, to an individual, uh, whether it's the vehicle or an injury themselves. And so that's something.
1: And premiums. And not forget theory, about insurance. that. Yeah. Flow, if you're listening, let's get those.
3: <laughs> this is a real Big Ten issue. And so whether it's for recreational, whether it's ecological, whether it's um, transportation or safety perspective, it, it, it advances a lot of different interests. And so that's where the alliance was kind of born out of. Like, we've got, depending on whatever your value is, getting animals across the road Safely. advances that, that value. <laughs>
1: exactly. Well, I think everyone in Colorado would agree with that, that as they go down, whether it's a two-track... Rural Road uh, or, you know, Interstate 70 or 25. They don't want to have to worry about injuring themselves or, you know, harming the, the species and, the, you, know, the, to, yeah. you know, taking an That's animal right. out of the out of the population. Everybody
3: has a story of, of either a, a hit or a near miss, whether you're living on the front range in, in, in urban areas and you're recreating out in uh, the mountainous areas, or if you live out in those areas, too, just kind of your day-to-day trip.
1: Well, so been. you guys have been bringing folks together on this stuff. I'm sorry, yeah. Ed, for cutting you off. I'm no, no, um, sorry. You know, I know Colorado did a roadway summit, and, Ed, you know, you and I have been part of some stuff in Wyoming and Montana. Um, how, how did the folks outside of the transportation world or the wildlife work, are they buying into this?
2: Well, I think so, and I'll let David speak from his perspective. I mean, back to the event, if I may. Yeah, go ahead. Um, You know, three states had had wildlife transportation summits in the past, Wyoming, Colorado, and then Montana, in that order. And when the secretarial order came out and the desire to have a coalescence of the states, Uh, to come together and talk about this that was kind of the genesis of why we had this transportation workshop and we brought together 12 state DOTs 11 wildlife agencies multiple NGOs and federal agencies to get together and talk about this and you can imagine that there are some states that aren't talking about it at all or don't want to talk about it all the way to those that are being very progressive and very proactive about this and I would certainly put Colorado in that in that upper end of progression in, in dealing with these issues um, so i think um, this is not a new issue wildlife vehicle collisions and road ecology have been around a long time montana state university has its own institute on on uh, the western transportation institute so people have been looking at this a long time but in discussing this with our, our community you realize pretty quickly that we're still, we're still not getting things done in all the right places, particularly for big game. And what
1: you're talking about there, Ed, is, is passages, correct? Correct. I mean, I've been Crossings. part of some of the stuff in Wyoming, but we're talking about – explain a little bit what goes into that. You know, I know the cost is huge, but, David, from the planning perspective, it's got to be a long process. And if you get in at the wrong time, you may not have a chance.
3: It It, it is a long-range process planning process that we do here in transportation. We look at the needs today, but we're also looking 20, 30 years down the road and seeing how is our population growing? Where are they going to be growing? And we overlay that with what we know about the herds. What are their behaviors? Are they going to be traveling down the same areas and the same ranges in 20 years? And so we're trying to use models to make data-driven decisions on prioritizing where those hot spots are today and where they're going to be down the road so that we can make um, data-driven investments. And
1: Ed, correct me if I'm wrong. Doesn't Utah have an app that they use? That they go out and map the roadkill so that they can help figure this stuff they out.
2: They do. It's a. It was a very creative um, uh, application of using a, a, a smartphone to record information on fatalities that was developed uh, by um, Daniel Olson uh, with the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources. And th- and actually, that was an interesting finding from our workshop where. We need to start developing these technologies and integrating data sets on how we can define hotspots and where the collisions occur and where it makes the most sense to put these overpasses or underpasses. Otherwise, how are we finding out that information? Well, it comes through vehicle crash data that the Department of Transportation agencies have. Uh, that's a, that's a key thing. But we're also, I think, you can you can, can make the connection of those crossings with GPS collar data. I mean, they don't so all just stop at a highway and you can imagine rural highways are very, d- and rural uh, county roads are very different than oh, yeah. interstate highways where they're, they're darn right. sure going across all the time. So that data can help identify these these migration. So corridors we have folks sense.
1: putting GPS collars or other type of radio collars and that information then is transmitted back to a server somewhere and you pull it up and you crunch it and you basically can say, hey, they're crossing right here.
2: A lot, yeah, and and refine that. And then the next step, though, is working with your Department of Transportation to coalesce these pieces of information and determine where those hot spots are and where it makes the the best sense to put a crossing. So, um, you
1: know, I talked about this the other day in in the special session, and, Ed, you and I have talked about this a lot. Trapper's Point up in Pinedale is one of those areas that we – had we done it better from the beginning, we wouldn't had to come in and retrofit that crossing in that bottleneck, which is six thousand antelope and eight to ten thousand deer a year. You know, it was uh, it was a bottleneck that was known about. They had a small crossing that no animal used, so they would get on the highway. DOT came in in the the 90s, early 2000s, upgraded the highway, put a passing lane, jacked the speed limit up. Well, guess what happened? We started seeing more and more. They tried the electronic signs, those didn't work. Wyoming winners. Yeah. Plus uh so what they had to come back in and it took about five years to get the money is, is they basically that whole corridor from from Pinedale to uh uh forty rod country out there, you know, fifteen miles, they had to come in and put a couple overpasses, underpasses and fencing and it costs ended up costing a lot more than it would have. So explain how this needs to work so that we don't repeat that mistake, guys.
3: Planning happens at a local level. And I think we work at the county and municipal levels to say, what is your vision in the next 20 years? And they see where those needs are, where the animals are, are really in conflict with the traveling public. And so by those counties, identifying or municipal planning organizations, identifying those hotspots, identifying those areas, it sets on their list of priority transportation projects. And then from that, money can flow saying this is where we want to invest in the next 20 years.
0: Well, and I think that's a really important observation. And it it is an issue of not just the transportation planning, but housing developments and other things. Mule Deer Foundation chapters have presence in a lot of these communities. They know where those animals are crossing, they know. So getting involved in the municipal planning process is probably a great opportunity for chapters or individual members to get involved and get engaged so that they can help be on the front end of these planning processes.
2: That's a great point because one of the things we heard, the two, the two key takeaways that I heard anyway, was that biologists are often far too late And they need to coordinate early and often. And the other thing had to do with partnerships and stakeholder engagement. And you need to engage the breadth of the stakeholder community. Obviously, uh, local Mule Deer Foundation chapters are part of that sporting community that need to be engaged. Um, And we would obviously think that most stakeholders would agree with this, but one key thing that someone said was don't assume that the public and all stakeholders are gonna consider this to be a good idea. We're seeing that in Idaho right now. Exactly, so I think that that early coordination with the the diversity of players is really, really critical. So Ed, you talked about the PDFs of this. Explain what you mean by that. So, um, and I'll give our colleague research biologist uh, Jeff Gagnon at the Arizona uh, Game and Fish Department credit for this, of course, he calls it the PDFs. Um, placement design and fencing. And it centers on the fact that you need to know, this is back to the old uh, metaphor of of real estate, location, location, location. Data-driven approaches to determine where those specific locations are for placement. The design has to not only consider engineering considerations for structural durability and longevity and all the things that you engineers think about, David, but also about animal behaviors. Dimensions and line of sight, and just things that make animals comfortable to use the structures in the first place. And so, then well, the Let me stop you right okay. there, Ed.
1: Why wouldn't an animal just use a bridge? I mean, what do they do? Is is it a width? Is it a? I mean, I know I've been to Banff, and up there they actually plant trees and shrubs exactly. and all sort of stuff. They make
2: it more of a of a natural infrastructure type develop. Or not they, but I mean, some of these structures have tried very hard to make those. These crossings as natural as possible, particularly for large carnivores that may be a little more sensitive than an So elk the bears, crossing. the wolves, the, the exactly. cats, sort of thing. And an undercrossing, uh, an underpass, as you might imagine, if you can't see to the end of it, you don't know what's on the other end. And there may be a, a bear waiting for you, uh, Jeff. Or Mignap, a killer clown. Right? <laughs> or a hunter. Yeah. <laughs> we all are a flip breed of tunnels. Exactly. <laughs> Accounting for that, you know, the the animal behavior and how they respond to going through uh So actually these knowing the, biology, uh, the of, biology of the target, target species. Yep. And it's know, And it's multiple so, objectives too. It's yeah. not just ungulates, it's considering Absolutely. large carnivores, small animals. The the objective can transcend all different species. And the In, third Factor of the well, fencing. fencing. The key thing is if you can't funnel the animals into using the crossing, they may never find it or use it. So this is a means by which, you know, the right amount of fencing, you don't have to fence necessarily 30 miles, but sometimes it can extend that far to bring those animals into a, a bottleneck. But it's a safe bottleneck because now they can go up and over or under the the threat which is being hit on the road.
1: So we have some of these out there in a couple states. Are they working? Yeah.
3: They are, and so what we're doing is not only committing to build these, but we're also monitoring their effectiveness. And so with each new example, we're learning more and more on width ratio or fencing and what types of uh, individual design refinements optimize these, this network, this system of improvements. We
0: li- I live here in Colorado, and I drive up through Kremlin a lot to hunt in northwest Colorado. So you've and, been over and that over is nine. Highway 24, right? Is nine. That, nine. Not, highway highway nine, 9, I'm sorry. Highway 9 through Kremlin. Don't take um, directions from Jody. Actually, that's <laughs> not true. I have very good. I just don't necessarily know the road numbers. <laughs> I know. know exactly how to get there. Though. You knew
2: you were going north <laughs> <road> to Kremlin.
0: <laughs> um, but the crossings that they have there, that was a huge project over the last few years. Um, and And I know I've Seen footage of moose crossing, um, yeah, and I yeah. understand um, we've talked to, to some of the Colorado Parks and Wildlife. I think it was a ninety percent reduction.
3: That's correct. Yeah, and so that's been a, a, a real achievement, accomplishment that we're real proud of here in Colorado. I think it 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 really reduced the animal vehicle collisions in the first year, and it's something that was a, a partnership with the local agencies, with landowners, with state and federal agencies and they went out and they did an education campaign and they talked with communities and said this is important how do we raise awareness how do we fundraise and we we realized that it wasn't any one entity that was going to have to pay for this we needed to pass the hat and so everybody stood up and, and collectively did that now back to the uh, learned behavior that was built in phases and for the mm-hmm. first phase they built that out they learned a lot from how effective, what worked, what didn't, and they applied all those things into the second phase. And so it really optimized that whole network. And so it's really been an effective um, example.
2: Actually learning by doing. (laughs) What a great concept.
0: Hey, that's Uh, (laughs) 4-H. So we, uh,
2: we actually highlighted this particular project a lot during our workshop, and largely because of that partnership framework. And it was a private landowner that really put forward a lot of the seed money. Some $4 million were put toward that project, and then it generated that um, cascading leveraging effect to to deal with a $40 million. And that private
0: landowner is Paul Tudor Jones, who, am I right? I mean, who is very engaged in the conservation community. He's been a part of the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation for a long time. He's, he's a tremendous conservation leader, so it, it, it's, it's not surprising that he would invest in something like this. He has a ranch in the area, so he's seeing it personally, but you know, other large landowners or other um, businessmen are seeing these connections of wildlife conservation and, and, and helping out and supporting the State Fish and Wildlife Agency, the State Department of Transportation, and others. And I think that's a great thing.
1: Well, what I love about it is we do these for big game mostly. Uh, the charismatic, larger species that need, you know, that end up on a windshield or or are, um, you know, takes so long we lose a bear, we lose a, a wolf, we lose a, a cat. You know, you don't replace that animal very quickly into the population. But the benefits to all other wildlife and species that come in. You go to these things, you're going to see small mammals, you're going to see birds. In Pinedale, we actually have sage grouse using underpasses. Now, think about that. A bird that can fly <laughs> over the highway is, walking, under is walking underneath right. an underpass put in for pronghorn, antelope, and mule deer. Um, it's awesome. You set up cameras. And, you know, it's applicable elsewhere. Florida with some of the issues yep. down there. Yeah, with Florida Panthers, herp <laughs> crossings,
0: yeah. turtles. I uh, dealt lizards. with that in Eugene, Oregon when I lived. That there. was people were dealing that with that session. Um, there was uh, somebody who gave turtles. on turtles yep. and and yep. Uh, uh, pond and turtles and others. frogs, yep.
1: um, toads. Well, I know a couple of crossings for box turtles and some eastern skinks mm-hmm. and that. That I used to go out and park my car sideways in the road so that when people came up, we could. You know, get the animals off the road, then then let the car through. Because if not, you were just going to yeah. have a mat of dead yeah. animals there. Yep. And so, it's really exciting to see this now. And I'm going to try to stump you here. And I can't remember if <laughs> stump we've stump the st- chump. Stump the chump. <laughs> um, are we seeing demographic impacts from saving all these animals from not getting hit on the highway? Are they available out there for the population for harvest for? other things. Yeah,
2: I don't have the data in front of me, but let's just think about this as biologists. Um, Where would you see a population level impact? If you're talking a large mule deer herd, you may not necessarily see that as a limiting factor, even if it's killing a fairly significant That's proportion. That's
1: the compensatory versus additive mortality that we learn. Sure, learned. and yeah, just even, so. yeah. Ecologist it, it, it,
2: hats, 10, take it off. <laughs> 10%, 10% mortality of a given deer herd may not really be a population level effect. But think about this think about a small, isolated population of bighorn sheep where you're hitting 10 or 15% of that population a year. Now, they're capable of coming back, but there may be other limiting factors, more so than maybe grizzly bears or something. Well, and from the hunter perspective, we look at it as,
1: that's an animal that's taken out of the opportunity pool for us. It's taken out of the opportunity pool. What I've learned through all this is you have to convince folks to support this, and if you say, if that deer is not whacked on the road, it's going to be out there in the environment for you to maybe go after, or to have babies and grow the herd, and that is something that the hunter, regardless of yeah. their background or the layperson, is going to say. That makes a lot of sense, whether it's right. statistically happening or not.
2: Well, and collisions are indiscriminate. They're not the vehicles are not taking out the old and the sick in a compensatory way. They're indiscriminate, and so whatever's in the road at the time the vehicle goes through and hits it is going to get hit. So, but I think there can be population-level impacts. Clearly, for Florida panthers. Clearly, for yeah. isolated populations of bighorn sheep or even moose, other creatures, um, but still, that's the right way to think about it, in my opinion. If you've got a solution to this to reduce those fatalities, why wouldn't you do it? And this is, to me, this is pretty low-hanging fruit. It's a win-win. It's just really expensive low-hanging well, fruit. It's like <laughs> buying your apple. It's like buying your apples at, at Whole Foods. Yeah, <laughs> it's low-hanging fruit, but it's expensive. Well, yeah. disclaimer: again, none of us. I don't want you to shop at Whole Foods. (laughs) That's correct. (laughs) Sorry.
0: Uh, My my point is the individual car collision, it's pretty pertinent to that person who either totals a car or is injured um, in that kind of a crash as well. So, you know, again, compensatory versus whatever. I mean, any population level for that human impacts as well may not be there. But when that individual is dealing with with a crash or we have multitudes of individuals or, or cars or the insurance premiums are going up.
2: And to that end, when you roll this up and put all of the information together, if you think about this, and this is just some information that came through at the uh, at the workshop that we had, animal strikes account for about 10% of the insurance claims and about 25% of the money paid out on comprehensive coverage planes. That's what wow. kicks in when Say that you again. hit a deer. About 10% of the comprehensive claims and 25% of the money paid out. That's significant. Nationwide. Well, let me tell you how significant significant it is. The Highway Loss Data Institute uh, shared some numbers with us, and between 2014 and 2017, I can't remember the actual numbers, but there's an average cost per strike of about $3,000. When I did my basic back-of-the-napkin math, that's 5.4% billion dollars that's real money claims paid out that's just the insurance over a four-year period just over a four-year period that's just the insurance industry's part of this david there are clearly costs to your organization as well area department of transportations as well as statewide agencies just to deal with this
3: yeah even looking in colorado when you look at rural areas that's the number one cause of of Safety in accidents is, I want to say it's over 37% of Colorado rural accidents are related to vehicle Isn't conditions.
1: that why the white-tailed deer is the most deadly animal in America? Because it causes more <laughs> human deaths. <through> they make <laughs> up the largest.
2: Deer contribute the highest percentage, obviously, uh-uh. and, mostly, and yeah. a lot of white tailed Now,
1: way. Ed, from the other thing that we learned from your workshop summary is when are most animals hit?
2: November. Consistently. <laughs> Con- Consistently across the country. It may be a different magnitude. But the timing is at it its lowest in August and highest in November. Is that because Antlers rut and moving. dispersal? Rut, dispersal. But also think about, in many states, that's the first month
1: where you experience any winter driving with the low light conditions and everything mm-hmm. else. So it's it, You, you know, could also attribute
2: uh, increased movement from heart, uh, hunters. Moving yeah, pushing animals around. around. There's probably lots of causal yeah. factors of that. But mm-hmm. I, I found that data to be very fascinating. Yeah. It was very, I mean, biologists, we all look at patterns. That's a key thing we look for. And there wasn't a lot of variation in that graph that was presented. It mm-hmm. is consistently November no matter where you're at. It's so, just a higher magnitude in a state that, like yeah, South Dakota or Wyoming. That's not, that's not saying Wyoming. it's not
0: happening other times. That That's, that's right. just the highest.
2: That's, that's yeah. the peak. So
1: these things are expensive.
2: The coordination
1: of planning, the data collection, that's all one chunk. Actually getting money for structures and getting coordination between transportation departments at the state level and the state agencies has got to be hard. What's going on at the federal level? Ed, can, is there any coordination amongst Department of Transportation at the federal level and, say, Interior with this order?
2: Yeah, I know that uh, with the issuance of Secretarial Order 3362 and the identification of threats that Department of Interior has been in conversation with Department of Transportation. And Federal Highways was part of our, of our workshop. Um, and we had discussions about uh, policy and funding sources and those kinds of things. Um, so there are that, those high-level conversations ongoing. We have a transportation bill that's coming up uh, soon in 2020. 2020. Yep. Uh, currently, there's language in, that, in, the, in the various portions of those bills and various grant programs for money to be available. Uh, so we want to make sure that that's, that stays there and maybe even uh, strengthen that a little bit to ensure that wildlife vehicle collisions are considered and and there's some performance measures associated with that. So there's there's implementation because we said this earlier, some states aren't interested. They're not doing much between the wildlife and uh, uh, agency and the departments of transportation. Others are on top of this and moving forward and. Well, and, and here's the cool thing
0: about the TRCP uh, full circle. Maybe not full circle yet, but getting there. Um, back in the day. Jim Range, in the early phases of TRCP, worked on the highways bill um, for something called transportation enhancements and other things through the what was ICE-T, the Interstate yeah. Transportation Enhancement Act, um, which was funding dedicated for wildlife. It, it, it was not nearly as effective and certainly not in this direction because of the way the language was created, the way the pots. It, it's gone off to a whole bunch of different yeah. other areas and not dealing with an issue of this nature. I think the, the opportunity for policy that is far more prescriptive and recognizing these impacts through the highway bill um, is is in sight. And, again, the fact that TRCP is leading the charge on this, to me, is very cool, um, you know, to see that history and the the, the connection to something that went on 20 years ago, uh, 15, 20 years ago, and now coming back in and hopefully we can make something out of it this time.
2: And that prescriptive idea certainly isn't new. I think people have tried most certainly to um – Uh, to look at a a wildlife specific program and there's some consequences to that and some pushback. Um, What we really need is to make sure that the policy allows for that durable, long-term use of those funds for wildlife projects that transcend any administration, Uh, any engineer, across state lines, (laughs) all of those kinds of things. That's the ultimate goal. Whether it has to be a specific line item uh, is yet to be determined. But we want to make sure that it just doesn't wind up as a nice-to-have and fall down the priority list. That's the key.
0: Yeah, so I know there was a... they, I've seen a video that I think you guys played at the, I was not able to be at that summit, but uh, the, about a project in Washington state on, I-90. The, on the I-90 yep. corridor. It's about a 20 to 30 minute video, but it's fantastic. And it gives you a really great overview about how those partnerships work together to create that.
2: And biologists and, and biologists, and, and then also together. seeing
0: what the design to me is so innovative and the things that they're doing in that particular project are amazing. Um, just getting underway, some of them are gonna be completed in this year and then a bunch more going down the line. Yep. But, but if anybody's interested, um, that video is a phenomenal one to do. I, I know we covered it in the Wildlife Man- Management Institute's Outdoor News Bulletin in the last month when when uh, Chris Smith wrote uh, who was at that meeting. Yes. He wrote a story about it. So we do have a link there. I don't know
2: if you have one. And do you, We does, do, and we have one for Highway 9 as well. Yeah. There's a nice five-minute video. Uh, if you're time-constrained, you can watch the five-minute video in Colorado. Similar similar in concept. It's
3: an exciting time to be thinking and be involved with this t- topic because we are seeing success successes throughout the west and so from colorado i can go and look at washington see what they're doing or what Idaho's doing, doing what Wyoming's doing and bring those successes and we try to duplicate that in our
1: own home home state yep. now david about a decade ago we talked about getting a crossing of veil pass on i-70 there was actually a contest with design select right. is that still in the works i mean is that still is. an issue from animal cross? Yeah. i know the, high, the, the traffic's probably actually worse now yeah. than it was 10 years ago. But. Particularly
0: with avalanches. <laughs> it's
1: true. People
3: continue to keep moving to the west. The populations are getting larger and larger, and they're still going to continue to recreate in Summit County and Eagle County along the I-70 corridor, which is a substantial barrier. Right. And so what Colorado has done, and specifically the I-70 mountain corridor, is committed to think about wildlife mobility is a part of every project they've integrated that so that it's not just building projects for safety for mobility but you're looking at these other values as a part of it and looking holistically at the project so they are you know as we do improvements we're we coordinate with the biologists. We coordinate with the, the local communities. So you actually
1: have it in the culture now?
3: Yes. Yeah. For, That's a really
2: key point is getting that embedded in, a, in the culture.
1: Culture leads to business. Business leads to action. Action leads to yeah. things happening Results. on the ground
2: and yep. animals not getting... And exploited. you mentioned um, the contest. I think this is a really interesting point. And Nevada's done some creative work. Colorado has as well. By getting community engagement, students involved with, you know, uh, a contest for an educational uh, sign or something to that effect, that community engagement is really a neat part of this. and gives them skin in the game. The other key thing that I learned at this, kind of coming back to working with the departments of transportation, is getting the maintenance folks involved, getting those that are moving dirt, Mm. that are making this thing. It's Mm -hmm. not just having the executive director of your department of transportation and a great engineer like david or others involved with this it goes all the way down to people moving dirt and it gives them skin in the game and yep. they want it to succeed and they can drive by it and tell their families and friends hey i moved the dirt on this project yep. and it was really important to me and i learned that i've learned that over my career working with folks. my grandfather built bridges
1: in Pennsylvania, and every time we go over one that he was on, I it's built exactly. Yeah. So.
2: But he'll tell that story, and then that just trans yeah. just moves so through the. The community. other thing
1: is, is I think we all enjoy seeing live animals versus dead animals, and being able to drive by and pointing at that moose and saying, "Look at the moose going over the overpass." Is look, better. look at the
0: moose! <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Quick, get out of the <laughs> way! Or, or, or look at that moose that didn't make it because oh, yep. it's you know on the side of the road. So, uh, gentlemen, what's next? David, what's what's up? What's in 2019 hold for you? And, you know, Ed, same question. Colorado, we are
3: launching a uh, wildlife prioritization study where we've looked at data. We've built a model to say, where are our hotspots? Where do we need to prioritize our 5%, 10% uh, segments of roadway or, or specific dots on a map? And from that, we can start tailoring local strategies to program these, to create awareness, to create partnerships, to make these ideas a reality.
1: I hope Highway 13 makes that. It's on the (laughs) list.
0: (laughs) Where can they find information about what CDOT's doing or the Transportation Alliance? Is there a website?
3: We'll be launching a website uh, in the coming months, ColoradoWildlifeandTransportationAlliance.com. All
0: spelled out, A-N-D, Wildlife, Colorado Wildlife. And that might be a one-stop
3: shop. I hope
1: your domain for your email isn't that long. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
3: <laughs> no, I think it, it's something where, yes, you can go to CDOT's website or the Colorado Parks and Wildlife, but I thought that this is something collectively, Rocky Mountain Elf Foundation, Mule Deer Foundation are partners yep. on this, and so we're trying to collectively yep. Marty all, Holmes
0: is involved with that. That's yeah. right. Yep.
3: That's right. Absolutely. So this is a, a campaign where um, we're trying to talk about how you can get involved, how you can learn more, what are the current events, what are the initiatives how you can stay awesome. engaged. Awesome.
1: Is there any event coming up that, that the public can get involved in?
3: No, I don't know.
1: I think well, the just keep, if they keep are, keep, they'll find yep, it on the yep, website.
0: ColoradoWildlifeAndTransportationAlliance.com. So. dot com. com. Excellent. Okay, and Te- Ed, what else have you got? What is TRCP going to be working on? And do you have a website coming out from this uh, workshop?
2: We yeah. will. And so three things specific to the transportation workshop that was held in Salt Lake City. We're finalizing our proceedings. We're doing partner outreach, which this is certainly part of. Um, We're working with the participants on some recommendations for future events and how how we want to proceed with getting people together broadly across the West. Um, And then I think we need to sit down and strategize with our partners as to kind of what we want to do. And when I say that, I mean the sporting community, our conservation partners, and others, from a policy perspective, we've got the 2020 transportation bill, all of those kinds of things. And then we want to get it down to the ground and start working and getting the sporting community. They've been involved, but we want to keep them involved with the momentum that's behind this at a local scale. So that's local MDF chapters. That's um, a variety of different sporting groups working on those individual projects or at a state level. And all of our stuff will be posted on this website that will be forthcoming on um, post transportation workshop that we had. Uh, soon, probably within a couple of weeks. I don't have a domain yet. Well, um, but I'm sure they can get there through trcp.org. Correct. There will be a link through that.
0: And we've had a number of stories about wildlife crossings from our uh, regional directors and some of our writers in the MDF magazine. So this is an issue we've covered for a long time and are are, are very aware of and and involved in. So we appreciate the time that we've had with you guys here today. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for uh, helping make our roadways safer and helping sustain our wildlife population. So for now. Thank you for talking mule deer. This is Jody Stemmler. And I'm Steve Belinda. Thank you, gentlemen, for keeping
1: the legacy alive at your organizations and for what you're doing for conservation. And thank you for talking mule deer. Thank you. Thanks,
0: Thanks for talking mule deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters and access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talkin' Mule Deer.